I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share their real-life experiences of the trials they faced and the tools they found to move forward and still live their best lives. I'm Jenny Taylor. And I'm Michelle Scharf. Very excited today. We have one of our listeners and a recommendation for our guest from um, a couple of our regular podcast listeners. So I'm very excited to introduce to you Amberly, Amberly, welcome to our show. Hi. I'm so excited to have you here. You have a very interesting story, and it's the timing couldn't have been better because we, we've had quite a few people reach out to us wanting to share the story, wanting to help other people understand about suicide prevention and what kind of treatments are available and what can be done to prevent it. And so we've been doing a few shows on that subject in particular, and just so happens that somebody said, hey, I listened to your podcast, and I think it was your brother-in-law. Was it Christopher? Yes. He told me he was going to send you a message and said, as long as you're okay with it. And I said, well, I'm not quiet about my story. And he said, okay, then I'm going to message Michelle. <laughs> and so it, it, the timing could not have been better. And so I'm really glad for this opportunity to meet with you and get your story. So really tell us about you and your story. So I grew up born and raised in Utah. I've never lived anywhere else. Typical LDS family, good, strong parents and siblings. We liked to spend time together, and it's just always that cheesy, happy family that you sing about in primary on Sunday. And I remember always thinking that was going to be my life. I was always going to just grow up, have kids, be a stay-at-home mom, and make a difference in the world. I didn't know how because I was incredibly shy, but I, I wanted to make a difference. But I also knew that I was different because I could tell that I viewed the world differently than other people. When I was young in primary, probably four or five years old, I remember when my teachers would say things like, Jesus says to love everyone, I thought, except for me, he doesn't think anyone needs to love me. No one loves me. And wow. Even yeah. at such a young age, those were the thoughts you had. Yeah, very wow. young. I remember specifically picturing other kids holding out a picture and saying, but I don't love this girl and holding up my picture. And I know it sounds silly as an adult, but I was little. I thought it was happening all over the world that kids were saying, but I can't love this person. And the teachers would say, that's okay. We don't love her. She's not lovable. And I didn't have the words to explain that to my parents to try and tell them I was depressed. I didn't know what depression was. I didn't understand why I felt that way. I just did. I was so young, and when I was in high school, I dated a guy that kind of made me feel like I wasn't worth anything, belittled me quite a bit, and then right after I broke up with him, finally, I was introduced to someone that I would later marry. I married him right out of high school. I was 18 years old, and I thought, oh, good, I can stay home and just be a mom now. 
but um, I knew on the honeymoon it was a bad marriage. I knew I shouldn't be there. I knew that it wasn't going to work out. But because of my upbringing, I didn't say anything or do anything about it. I thought, you're supposed to stick this out. You're supposed to face this kind of stuff and stay strong together and work through it and we'll figure this out. So I stayed in a bad marriage for 13 years. We did have five kids together. Towards the end of that marriage, his dad died. And then my brother's wife died three weeks apart. And that was really hard for him and me. We were kind of the only ones that felt the pain of both deaths so close together. He just fell apart. His dad was his best friend. I guess that year, everything really started to go downhill. And after about two years after his dad died, we got divorced. We we were separated several times throughout our marriage. But the thing that really me to get the divorce was my sister calling me and saying, have you heard of Susan Powell? And I'm sure anyone that lived in Utah at the time knows the Susan Powell case. And yeah, of course, I know who Susan Powell is. And she said, I don't want you to be her. And I laughed and I, I said, I'm not in that bad of a marriage. What are you talking about? And my sister said, I think you are. I think you're just in denial because she had seen some of it, just bits and pieces, and she had heard me talk about some of it. And so I listened to, funny enough, a podcast about Susan Powell and everything fit. And I said, you're right. I need to get divorced. I have to leave now. And immediately I filed like the next day, and it was done in a couple of months. It wasn't a long, drawn-out process like a lot of divorces are. And when I knew I had to get divorced, I called my mom and I said, I don't know where to go. I don't know what I'm going to do with five kids. And she said, it's summer, they don't have school, and there's a house next door that just got emptied. And everything just fell perfectly into place. And I moved next door to my parents, and they've been a huge blessing through the whole process of my divorce, my remarriage, my treatments. They've taken care of kids. They've driven me to and from treatments and visit me in the hospital and countless hours that they've done things for my kids and with my kids and that they wouldn't be able to do that if they didn't live next door because sometimes my kids just walk over there and walk downstairs and watch tv with them and play with the toys down there my parents are having a bad day where they can't drive and they're they're still able to watch my kids for me and that's been a miracle Um, that's awesome and then I was single for a couple of years I joined a bunch of dating apps (laughs) trying to find somebody to share my kids and my life with. And that's where I met my current husband. But I first saw his picture and there was two things on there. I was like, no way, I'm not dating that guy. First of all, he had a mustache. <laughs> I swore I was never going to marry someone with a mustache. That was weird. And second of all, he had five kids and I had five kids. And I thought there's no way. That's no a way big that's Brady bunch. <laughs> yeah, it's almost double the Brady bunch. But he sent me a message and just said, look, I don't do well on these messages. You want to just meet for lunch and see if there's anything there? And I said, sure. And I don't know why, because I really didn't think anything would come of it. But I guess I was just excited for a free lunch or something. (laughs) So we met at IHOP. And on our first date, I looked in his eyes and I went, oh, my gosh, I'm going to marry this guy. Wow. And I told him that and he teases me all the time. You can't resist my eyes. (laughs) I just saw this kindness I had never seen before. So we went out every week after that. And after a couple of months, my mom tells me this part. I don't remember because of my treatments. 
most of those memories are gone. Of that, I've had family members tell me how they saw saw me happy for the first time in 15 years, and how it was a different kind of joy that I finally had. And I went to my mom and I said, "Mom, what's wrong? I'm falling in love with a guy that has five kids. I can't do that. I have five kids of my own. I don't want to be a stepmom. I don't want to be a blended family. That's this is just crazy. What am I thinking? And she said, that's not what you base your marriage on. It's on how you feel about each other. And my parents are about to celebrate their 50th anniversary. So I guess she knows what she's talking about. Oh, that's beautiful. So we went to actually the Old Girl Mountain Temple together. And sitting in the temple, he pulled out a ring and I did not see it coming. Mm -hmm. He pulled out a ring and he said, I'm tired of talking about the what if. Let's do this. I know you want to do it. And I said, yes, I do. We jumped right in. We got married. We met in August, and we were married in January. Then all of a sudden we had 10 kids, and we were trying to figure out how to get them to, I think it was four different schools at the time, and just basically how to blend a family. And that came with a lot of challenges. The logistics of that seems crazy. Yeah, he lives in Salt Lake at the time, and I live in West Valley. He just came and lived in the house I was in because I was in a home and he was in an apartment so that we could stay close to my parents. They could continue to help with the the younger kids. Um, Jason and I had decided before we got married that we didn't need to have more kids. We already had plenty. We were done. And then we just kept feeling like there was a baby waiting for us. And I I told Jason, look, I had fertility issues in my first marriage. You'd never know it because I had five kids, but I don't know that we're going to be able to have kids. And he said, well, we both feel like we are. Let's just see what happens. So stop all birth control methods and immediately got pregnant. And we miscarried pretty early on. And then we got pregnant again almost immediately after that with our son that is now five. And Oh, wow. So now you have 11 kids? 12, actually. Then we had another one after that. Um, oh, wow. My our youngest is three years old. She's actually next door with my parents right now. <laughs> Definitely hoping we're done and that Heavenly Father doesn't say, no, you're not. Have some more. Because <laughs> that sounds um, exhausting. <laughs> it's pretty exhausting. <laughs> I've got seven kids. I'm like, whoa, you just lapped me several times. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to wrap my brain around that. Heaven bless you. And some of the fun is that we have two sets of twins in there. I was going to ask, can you tell us the ages of the children between the his, hers, and yours? The oldest is 24, and then down to our youngest is three. Oh, my goodness. Heaven bless you. That's, um, so how many years ago did you marry your current husband then? Six years. So six, six years. It'll so, be seven. Okay. Wow. So... Amberly, we need to take a break, but when we come back, um, you've already mentioned treatments a few times, but we haven't really laid the groundwork for our, our listeners of what those treatments are about. So when we come back, let's hear more of your story. We'll be right back. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? 
follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. And we're back with Amberly. Amberly, tell us more about your story. You've, you've talked a little bit about having treatments and that your parents have been a great support for that. But we don't really know why um, and what you're referring to. So tell us about the struggles that you've had. You've had this marriage that was not healthy, but then you found right. a, a love of your life who been a great support for you. And you've blended families, added two more children. What's the undercurrent of you and, and what's gone on in your life? So the treatments were for depression which I think a lot of people hear that and just think, oh, she's sad. But this has been a, literally a lifelong battle for as long as I can remember. All throughout elementary, I was incredibly paranoid. I thought everyone was always watching me, so I was really shy. I held back every emotion. I never showed anything to anyone, talked to anyone. I had very few friends because I was so, so shy. And then by the time I got to junior high, there were two boys in our neighborhood that killed themselves. They had a suicide pact. They died about a month apart. And although I grew up in West Valley, it was still a small town, that neighborhood. You know, everyone knew everyone. And so there was a lot of talk. And a lot of my friends that were closer to these boys, I knew who they were, but I wasn't really close to them. But people that were close to them were angry at them and saying how selfish they were and how could they do that to their family and friends. And, and I remember thinking, you guys just don't get it. You don't understand. I know how they felt. I feel that way all the time. And that was the first time that the word suicide had ever crossed my mind. And I thought, you guys don't understand how hard that must have been to live like this. And then to suck it up, basically, in my mind. I know that's the wrong term to use, probably, but I thought that that's what they did. They, they sucked it up and they took it and they ended their life to get away from that horrible misery. But the more that gossip went around and the more people talked, I, the more I heard about different ways that people kill themselves because everyone was talking about it all the time. And so I started looking into how I could do that in junior high. And I started by, you know, I'd pull down my parents' medicine box and every over-the-counter pill that was in there, I would take three or four of them just to see what would happen. And friends that I had mentioned it to didn't know what to do, how to handle it. They just thought I was being a crybaby, seeking attention. Nobody talked about depression, so nobody knew what to do about it. Um, but I did write in my journal about the feelings behind it, that I wanted to die, that I was so tired of being sad all the time, no matter what I did or who I talked to. I was still so sad all the time, and I didn't know how to fix that. Finally, one of those friends, when I was... 16, went to my mom and said, you need to read her journal. She's told me some stuff that's in there. She made me promise I wouldn't tell you. So I'm not telling you what's in there, but I'm telling you to read it. So, of course, my mom did that. So I came home from school, and my mom was on her bed crying. And I said, what's wrong, Mom? And she picked up the journal, and I knew immediately what had happened. And I grabbed my journal, and I said, you can't. That's mine. And she she said, I already did, and we're going to get you help. And so I started on therapy medication when I was 16 years old. Um, 
but apparently I would learn throughout the years antidepressants only last for so long in your system. Eventually your body will just kind of become immune to it. And so I thought I was basically healed. I knew I'd be on medication forever, but I thought I was healed and realized over time I was not. (laughs) I went to several counselors through that time, several different medications. When I was married to my ex, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder too because I had so many ups and downs. She thought that that's what it was. I think it was just because I was being abused. And so I had a lot of manic and depressive episodes that looked like bipolar. And then when Jason and I had been married for four years, five years, our baby girl that's now three was just barely one year old. I was still breastfeeding. And we had four of our kids have their wisdom teeth pulled at the same time. And they were all put on different pain pills. And I was elated in the back of my mind because this was my out. I was going to be able to finally take my life and be done with the challenges of depression. And my baby was almost done breastfeeding, so I didn't need to worry about her anymore. The rest were all taken care of with my parents, my husband. So um, I had been gathering their pills in my purse over time. And then the last pill bottle, my daughter brought up to me and said, okay, mom, you can dispose of these for me. I'm, I don't think I need any more. And I didn't have my purse close by with the other one, so I put it in a drawer in my bathroom. And then the morning that I planned my suicide, I got in my car and realized I had forgotten to grab that last pill bottle. And I ran inside to grab it, and my husband was awake at 4 o'clock in the morning brushing his teeth. He said, I couldn't sleep, and I just felt like I had to do this. And he was standing right in front of that drawer. So I I said, I forgot why I came back, and I ran out. And I cried the whole way there because I knew that I couldn't complete my suicide without that last pill bottle. So um, I finally, I don't remember how, I don't remember anything else about that day. In fact, even that much has been told to me. But I told my husband that I was, I had a suicide plan and I needed help. And he took me to the hospital. And while I was inpatient at uni in Salt Lake, I started ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, where some people call it shock therapy. And the first one, I woke up from that treatment thinking, I'm finally going to feel happiness. I'm going to feel deep happiness, not just on the surface, but I'm going to actually feel like normal and I felt like there was hope for the first time I was um, 39 it's been um, almost a little over two years since my first ECT treatment and I did that for 21 months before I decided it wasn't working for me anymore but those treatments were pretty intense you go under general anesthesia and I'm sure everybody knows a little bit about it but they send electric shock into your brain to cause a seizure, but it would really wear me out for at least 24 hours. And I couldn't drive for 24 hours after. But more than just the treatment itself, there was a good solid year of my life that I don't remember. Time with my kids. I couldn't read because I would look at a page and the words would just jumble together and not make sense. I had a hard time talking and communicating because getting words from my brain to my mouth was just so much work. I couldn't write which is really hard of my work. I have to take notes a lot, and I had a hard time writing. 
I couldn't play the piano, which was one of my passions. One of the things that would get me through dark times. Whenever I was depressed, I'd sit down and play a couple of songs on the piano, and and I'd feel better. But um, I couldn't do it. I couldn't read, and I couldn't play the piano, and I couldn't talk, and I couldn't write, and I couldn't remember anything. My kids' favorite thing to tease me about even now is how many times I came home and noticed our quote, new carpet. It's not new, but I thought it was new because I was so out of it. And I came home from several treatments, at least six, they said, before I finally started remembering that that was our carpet and it wasn't new anymore. <laughs> and my husband still loves to, to joke about that, the new carpet thing. And it was, there was a few times when I woke up in my bed and I would see my husband and I would look at him and know he was the love of my life this cheesy story you hear, I'd look at his eyes and I knew that's what I loved about him, what I first loved about him. And then I would ask him, how did we meet? How long have we been together? (laughs) My kids went through some really, really hard times seeing their mom like that for so long. But people have often asked me as I try to share some of my story on my social media, They'll ask me things like, would you recommend ECT? Why, why did you do it if, it's, if it was so hard? And, you know, it was the only thing that pulled me out of the darkest depression I ever faced, which is saying a lot for someone that's dealt with it since early childhood. It pulled me out, and I do recommend it for people to try if they've already done all these other things, if you've already tried the medications, counseling, but make sure it's like a last resort and be careful how many you do, because I did it a lot more than most people. I did it very consistently for that 21 months, whereas most people will do, I think the average is 6 to 15 treatments, they told me, and I did about 83. So that is a big part of why I couldn't remember things or function as well and why my kids struggled. They call it my emotionally unavailable time where they couldn't come to me with anything because I didn't hear it. I didn't understand it. I couldn't comprehend anything they were talking to me about. That is a massive amount of ECT therapy. Yeah, it is. Yeah. The few groups that I've tried to chat on, which I don't usually get very far because they think I'm anti-ECT when I try to say, be careful. (laughs) But most of them have done like 15 or one every two or three months. And I did three series in less than a year, which is very uncommon. I don't know that with the numbers, but I know it's very rare to do that many that close together. This story is, it's really, it's a powerful story to listen to. I don't think, if you haven't dealt with depression or don't know anyone that has had depression, I mean, this this is kind of beyond depression. It may be yeah. depression, but it's severe depression. It's happened from an early age in your life, throughout your life, and has has taken its toll on you emotionally, mentally, physically, you know, to the point that you did just want to be done. And I think a lot of people who are listening that have suffered will totally understand that. Yeah, the Um, hospital called it treatment-resistant major depressive disorder, TRMD. Yeah. That sounds like an appropriate title for it, because <laughs> yeah. it, because when you say just when you just say depression, it leads you to believe that it's like a temporary situation. We all get depressed at different times, but this is really 
a disorder that you were probably born with. I mean, you have early memories of it, but at some level, you were probably born with it and was depressed even as a young baby. Yeah. It's really amazing. Let's take a break for a minute. And when we come back, Amberly, tell us a little more of what your journey is today. Um, obviously, it's a journey that's ongoing. And we'd love to know maybe what you're learning about resilience along the way and maybe the people and the things that are helping you and helping your children as you continue on this path. We'll be right back. And we're back. Amberly, thank you for taking us on such an emotional journey. I think we can all feel the weight of just everything that you've carried and and so many years and so many different experiences leading to that planned suicide that you had and um, the hospitalization, the treatment and things after. Can you tell us where you are today in in your journey here with your mental health and also with trying to develop and strengthen your resilience? Yeah. One thing that I have to remind myself a lot is resiliency doesn't just mean you're done, which I tend to do a lot. Okay, I did good on that. Now I'm done with my trials. I'm done with my hard times. It just means being able to get back up after every time, like fall down eight times, get up nine, spring back into shape and get back where you need to be and continue on. The other day, my three-year-old was playing with a bouncy ball. And my husband says that I'm cheesy when I talk about this, but she playing with this bouncy ball and she threw it and it rolled between the fridge and the counter next to it where nothing gets clean very often. And I helped her get it out of there and it was dirty. So we wiped it off and she just went and played with it again. And I was telling my husband that that thought hit me that that's what kind of our lives can be like is, we can be bouncing around, playing, having a good time, maybe get some dirt on us. We just have to stand up and clean up and keep going, and we can have fun again, and there will be good times. It doesn't mean that there will never be hard times again, that we'll always stay perfect and clean and happy, but we can push through that. I pushed through those two years of treatments and the hard time that it was on my family, and sometimes my instinct is to curl up in a ball and cry and say it's too much when all my memories start flooding back to me or when I realize what I missed with my kids in that time and how hard it must have been on them I just sometimes I just curl up and cry and and many nights I've cried myself to sleep on my husband's shoulder and yet your kids would have lost so much more had you taken your life I have to remind myself of that and sometimes my daughter has to remind me and she's almost 20 and sometimes she'll have to be the one to say, Mom, I'd rather drive you to your treatment and watch you go under anesthesia for a few hours than not have you at all. She had to pick up a lot of the pieces for me, being my oldest. and She's an amazing young lady. Absolutely. So I love the analogy about the ball and um, and it kind of denotes the whole concept of resiliency, right? Like we're going through life. It's all great and fun. You know, you're bouncing the ball around the house and everything's fine. 
but then, you, you know, we do all get into spots where, you know, maybe you hit a mud puddle and you have to kind of take the time to like wash that off and clean it back up and be able to go back out and get started again. Yeah. It is true that resiliency isn't something that you are or you do and you're done because we're constantly battling a myriad of different challenges in our life, right? So, yeah. and, we, and every it, time one happens, I, I tend to think, I'm done. That was my last tryout. I'm good now. <laughs> and then yeah. something else comes my way and says, no. And one thing I mentioned, my brother's wife had passed away back in 2009. And one thing she used to always say is, whenever I say, I can't do this alone, Heavenly Father, I can't do this anymore. He says, you're not meant to. And it's important to remember that we let people help us, including, to me, it's the Savior. To others, it may be another higher power or just a loved one on earth. But it's important to accept and recognize that help that's out there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story with us. Not I'm so easy. grateful to do it. It's not easy to share these things and, and to to be open and also to relive some of the trauma and the disappointment of, you know, it's fair to feel like you, you missed out and, and to struggle with that. And at the same time, like I said earlier, better that than your children not having a mom here. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes there's not great solutions, but there's solutions that can help us along the way and keep us alive and keep us here and keep us fighting and keep us moving forward for our families. I really appreciate you sharing your story with us. Thank you for having me and thank you for your podcast. Yeah. Thanks Amberly, for listening. Just so many things through this conversation, talking about resilience, not meaning that you're done. Like you said, you go through something and think, okay, I've, I've graduated from this. I've learned. I've, I've grown. I've stretched myself beyond my limits. And, oh, my goodness, I guess I'm going to keep doing that. And there's something else around the corner or, or still coming. I appreciate your being so real and able to acknowledge that resiliency can come in the middle. I think sometimes we think we become resilient after or we learn the lesson later, or eventually we look back and we can see the good growth. But to stay in the fight, to keep going, yeah. to reach out to the people and the resources available that help, even if, like Michelle said, they're not great answers, and it's not that deep, profound, instant happiness, but it's an answer, and it's a step, and we can take that. Thank you. Thank you for joining us, and really thank you, especially coming from from someone Michelle and I haven't met before, we're hoping that this podcast is helping people find a voice to help have these conversations that then hopefully lead to more conversations when people listen. To our listeners, we thank yeah. you for joining with us, for joining Amberly and supporting her and her journey that continues to be ongoing. And if you're listening and you have a story you're willing to share, we would encourage you to reach out. There's someone in our audience that needs to hear what you have to say that might be strengthened by what you have lived through. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform. You can contact us by email at rrpodcast at ksl.com. We're on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient, and we're on Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. Whatever you do today, remember to be kind, 
You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their own lives. Have a great day. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.